Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, the teenage rapist and the courtroom botch-up over his sentencing. A High Court judge has decided teenage rapist Jaden Meyer will remain on home detention, but has given a scathing review of how the case was handled. Justice Sally Fitzgerald said they'd left it six weeks too late to try to overturn a punishment she is calling manifestly inadequate. The judge has said a more appropriate sentence would have been at least three years. Jaden Meyer is just over three months into his nine-month home detention sentence for raping four teenage girls and sexually violating another, a sentence that sparked an angry response when people first heard about it last month. We want what protesters around regional New Zealand today have been calling for is a justice system that is accountable to young victims for whom the anguish lasts many years. Preferably jail time. You absolutely need to deter and denounce and that's not what's happening with sentences like this. And the latest decision has left victims and their supporters feeling no sense of justice. Fascinating and very sad, yeah. Very sad from the victim's perspective. Definitely. And I think the outcome of the appeal is going to hurt them even more. You know, basically means that if the Crown had had, um, appealed when they should have done, he'd be in prison right now. That's going to be very difficult to hear. That's Deborah Wilson, Associate Law Professor at Canterbury University, responding just minutes after that High Court judgment on Wednesday declining the appeal application. It meant that Jaden Meyer would continue his home detention sentence. So home detention might be the right thing, but it's about getting some balance, isn't it? It's about the victims feeling like they have justice, and in this case, they don't feel like they've got justice. He was a 16-year-old kid, right? And we know that 16-year-old kid males in particular don't have the best decision-making processes. But he's also a 16-year-old who who raped and and sexually assaulted young girls. And so it's very hard to sort of balance out his age and his factors with the needs of the victim. Um, But I'm not sure they got it right in this case. Deborah will explain home detention versus a prison sentence and how a judge reaches that decision – But let's go back to early September when news of the case broke. Ethan Griffiths is with the New Zealand Herald's Open Justice team. He covers court in the Bay of Plenty and Coromandel. I guess it's very important to preface this by saying that uh, no reporter from any media organisation was actually present in court for the prosecution itself. So from first appearance through sentencing on these charges, uh, there was no in-court coverage uh, of Jaden Meyer. So I discovered a judgment on the Courts of New Zealand website uh, which detailed the offending, uh, didn't detail the identity of uh, of the defendant and essentially explored what he had done uh, and why he was convicted. Uh, At that point, our information was very limited, so I went about uh, applying for further documents from the court, uh, which which was granted. Uh, Those documents included the presiding judge's sentencing decision, which revealed the nine-month home detention sentence for the four counts of rape uh, and one of sexual violation. You say there was very limited information about it when you came across it uh, through court documents. What did it tell you? There was this offender who who at that point was unnamed and uh, he had 
committed uh, this offending. It was quite uh, brazen offending, I think it's fair to say. At least three of the four rapes occurred over clearly voiced refusals. So there wasn't any question over withdrawn consent. The sentencing decision landed from the court, written by the Tauranga District Court Judge Christopher Harding. That decision uh, was devoid of detail. Uh, it did not remotely touch on how a sentence of home detention was reached, despite both the Crown and uh, Judge Harding himself saying in the decision uh, that uh, a sentence for this offending would ordinarily be one of imprisonment. Is that unusual to not have a sort of an explanation behind the sentencing decision? Well, a sentencing decision, a sentencing judgment essentially is a matter of public record when it comes to uh, the circumstances around the offending and how a sentence is landed upon. This judgment, uh, all it said was that the Crown had advocated for a home detention sentence of 12 months. The judge landed upon nine months the position of defence is not detailed at all except to say that they advocated for a home detention sentence. And the 16 paragraphs in that decision just details that he was sentenced to nine months home detention uh, with a further 12 months of post-release conditions. That sentencing took place in July and as you say there, was no, there were no media there for that sentencing. You, you came across it and you published your article on September the 6th. So up until then, nobody really knew about this case uh, apart from those involved in it. Correct. I, I think there was, uh, certainly among uh, Tauranga's youth, there was sort of an understanding within some circles that this prosecution had occurred, uh, but there was no public reporting of it. Essentially, all reporting was informed or had to be informed by what was contained within that sentencing decision. And I, I do note that, that three months on now, uh, the information that we have around how that original sentence was reached is still not known. OK, the article comes out on September the 6th. What happened? It sort of grew a life of its own, really. Uh, it got uh, extreme pickup on social media. Everyone was pretty outraged. I think it's all I've been seeing on Instagram and like social media this week. Particularly from young people in Tauranga uh, and then sort of went, went nationwide. I think if you're a young person on Instagram, it would have been very hard to avoid uh, reading anything about this case. Uh, from that, uh, some young people organised protests. Thousands of people have taken to the streets in five North Island centres today, protesting at what they say are injustices in the court system for young rape victims. We're fighting for justice and our rights. Any of my girl, like friends, if they ever went through any of this shit, that guy wouldn't be in nine months. He would be six feet down. One protest in Tauranga four days after the story was published that saw around 600 predominantly young people uh, march along uh, the main street of Mount Monganui. Protesting uh, this sentence specifically, but also calling uh, for an end to rape culture. You went along to that protest. Describe what it was like. This was something else. I think it was, it was interesting in the sense that it was led exclusively by young people, students in Tauranga who, many of which had known Jaden Meyer himself, uh, had gone to school with him, uh, had associated with him, uh, and essentially were responding from their perspective to what was injustice towards the victims. Now, the victims 
uh, later that day uh, published a piece they'd written themselves for uh, open justice uh, where they said that it felt like justice uh, hadn't been done. In an anonymous article on behalf of the five victims, they talk of their unbearable pain suffered at such a young age and how Maya's actions caused a lifetime of trauma and hurt. They were left to pick up the pieces of their shattered worlds. There are a lot of people there as well who who had come you know, some distance to protest there. There was a lot of older men on their own as well who who clearly felt there was an injustice here and led them to you know marching in the street but something else happened that day half an hour before that protest began uh crown solicitor anna pollitt who was the prosecutor in this case uh, released what could probably be described as a relatively rare statement for a crown solicitor effectively defending the sentence and explaining that that her support for home detention came from the perspective of uh, wanting to ensure uh, that Jaden Meyer had every possible opportunity he could to rehabilitate. Obviously, his youth was very relevant being 16 at the time of the offending and 18 now. So why the backflip by the Crown Law Office? How did it go from supporting home detention at the initial sentencing in July to filing a late appeal which was heard in the Rotorua High Court last week. It was a bit of a bombshell when when we discovered that. The Crown Law Office, the Office of the Solicitor General, uh, became aware of the case the day after uh, the story was published by Open Justice. And it took around two weeks from that point for the Office of the Solicitor General to file an appeal against the sentence, which is interesting in the sense that uh, obviously the Crown supported a home detention sentence right the way through the prosecution from the point of conviction just for the sentence to be you know partially served by Jaden Meyer before uh, Crown Law and Wellington deems it appropriate to appeal the sentence. The Deputy Solicitor General Madeline Laracy lodged the appeal last week submitting important public interest factors have not been accommodated by the sentencing process. She told the court it was a substantial departure from ordinary sentencing practice. But Justice Sally Fitzgerald declined the Crown's appeal and said Meyer would continue his home detention, all because the Crown Law Office left it too late, six weeks too late. If the Crown had appealed when they should have done, he'd be in prison right now. Deborah Wilson again. She's written a piece for the conversation about the case. So the sentence is given and then either side has 10 working days or or two weeks to appeal. Right, so six weeks out of time means that those two weeks have gone past and then another six weeks. That's one of the things that's so interesting about this case is that the Crown was basically appealing its own recommendation. Yeah, which is how it gets a bit strange. I mean, as soon as he was convicted, the Crown said, we will not be seeking imprisonment. And then when it's gone to the sentencing hearing, they've also said, we're looking at home detention because that's the best option for rehabilitation. And so the judge actually gave them what they asked for. And then I think the the Crown Prosecutor's boss has had another look at it and said, no, hang on, this isn't right. And they've made the decision to appeal. Of course, after that sentencing was when the public and the you know the media first heard about it. There was outrage over that sentence. Would that have influenced the Crown prosecutors? Um, I'd be surprised if it didn't influence them a little bit. 
Mayor's lawyer Rachel Adams told the court the appeal should not be a response to extreme public sensationalist reaction to which Deputy Solicitor-General Madeleine Laracy replied that was not the case. You'd hope it didn't influence them too much because if that happened, then you know every time there was a sentencing, the public could go out and appeal and you'd have to reopen it. They, they're very much aware of the protests and they've taken them into account, but I think they would have definitely been looking at the legal factors behind it as well. And you can see that with the, the appeal decision, right? The sentence was described as manifestly inadequate. So clearly some part of the sentencing process hasn't been followed through correctly. And that's just what Justice Fitzgerald said in her 42-page judgment, that the sentencing judge didn't follow the regular process and lacked transparency. So the normal process would be that the judge would give a starting point for sentence of imprisonment and they would then sort of move it up or down depending on aggravating and mitigating factors and then they'd, they'd reach a final sentence. And it, from what I've, I've heard the Crown Prosecutor say, that didn't happen. So you've got a judgment that doesn't really explain how the judge reached the decision. How can you justify a sentence like this in the first place? I mean, I think that is what, what the public and the people who have protested this, this, this sentence, that is what they don't understand. Yeah, and that's why I wrote it, because my friends and family didn't understand it either. And I was trying to say to them, well, look, this is kind of what happens. And they were saying, but how? And so when I was explaining it to them, I thought, let's write it down and try and explain it to other people. Mm. Um, but basically what it comes down to is when a judge is, is giving a sentence, they work from the Sentencing Act, and the Sentencing Act tells them to take into account nine different purposes of sentencing, right? And a lot of them are, in, are inconsistent. So if you prioritise one of the purposes, he ends up in prison. If you prioritise another one, he ends up on home detention. And so it can be very difficult for the judge to decide which purposes to apply in, in a given situation. Can you talk about what those factors are? Yeah, so there are nine purposes of sentencing. So some of them talk about um, holding the offender accountable. So basically making him understand that what he did was against the law and he deserves to be punished for it. Others require him to sort of take responsibility for his actions um, and to send a message to, to the community that we simply don't accept those kinds of um, offences against women. So those purposes suggest that he needs to go to prison for, for quite a reasonable amount of time. But on the other hand, the judge is also required to look at things like the offender and their need for rehabilitation and reintegration into society, and also the long-term um, safety of the community. And I think those are the two that the judge um, chose to prioritise in this case. You know, the idea that if you want this kid to be a valued member of society and never to offend again then the best thing to do is rehabilitate him so that in the long term the community is safe from him. So it's an approach that sort of ignores really what he's done and focuses on how do you stop him doing it again in the future. The mitigating factors would likely include his age, and he was 16 at the time. It would have to. I mean, that's the only thing that I can sort of see that, that would mitigate it. The other factors that they look at is, you know, 
did he plead guilty straight away? And it appears that that didn't happen. And right the way through, he was still not sort of taking responsibility for his actions. Did he show remorse? Did he have any um, diminished intellectual capacity or mental illness? None of those seem to apply. So it really does seem like the only thing is really his age and perhaps the fact that he hasn't been in trouble with the law before. But then given he was only 16 at the time, that's not an unusual um, thing to meet for someone of that age. And what about the aggravating factors, Deborah? You're talking about things like what the offending involved, that it was violent offending. Yeah, so that's one of the key factors. If it's actual or threatened violence, then the the sentence is going to go up. Um, particular cruelty, the vulnerability of the victims, um, they were all young and drunk and one was asleep at the time. So those all should have, have counted against him and increased the sentence. In fact, the judge considering the appeal application did look at some of these factors. Yes, youth and his lack of prior record are mitigating factors. Also, that there wasn't a significant amount of violence involved. But on the aggravating side, there's the age and the vulnerability of the victims and the fact there were multiple girls involved. Is there actual discussion that goes on in the courtroom between the Crown Prosecutor, the defence lawyer and the judge over that sentence? Yeah, so basically um, the prosecution and the defence will both tell the judge what they think an appropriate sentence is and then the judge will sort of look at those and make his own decision. So each side would have said, this is the appropriate starting point for a sentence, this is how much we would move it up or down for aggravating and mitigating factors, and this is where we think the final sentence is. Mm. And if they come up with a final sentence that is two years or less imprisonment, they would then say whether they thought that should be served as home detention or prison. So the judge basically hears the arguments for both sides and then has to make up their own decision as to where it where it fits. So Maya is sentenced to nine months home detention and he has to attend a, a re- rehabilitation program. What else? Are there any other restrictions on his life over those nine months? Um, there are 20 conditions imposed. Um, we're not sure what all of them are. The rehabilitation is a key one. Um, Second, he's not allowed to associate with anyone under the age of 16. He's under judicial monitoring, which means that a judge will um, check on his progress every three months. And if he's not engaging with rehabilitation, then he could be resentenced and perhaps sent to jail. Um, There's also some limit on his internet use because he's already challenged that as being an unfair condition. Mayor's lawyer Rachel Adams said the home detention conditions were extensive and onerous on Mayor and that he has complied with them. I mean, the outrage is understandable, isn't it? Because where does this... The the victims don't feel they've been listened to. I absolutely agree with that. They're, They're simply not part of the process. And I think one of them commented that the whole process of, of prosecuting him was about two years for her and he's not even serving that long as a sentence. So I can completely understand that they don't feel heard and they don't feel part of the process. The thing is that, you know, it's so hard to even find out about cases like this. I've spoken to one of the journalists who actually just came across it as he was searching through court decisions. If he hadn't come across it and published the first story, 
most people wouldn't have known anything about that. And and is that even fair? It's not. I mean, the idea behind justice in New Zealand is that it's open. Yeah, in reality, it's just not. Just as an example, did you know that there were over 400 people on home detention at the moment for sexual offending against children? No. 400. I was quite shocked when, when I read that the other day. Yeah, and we don't know. We hear about one or two of them in the news. So that was where I said giving him, giving Maya home detention was not out of step with other sentences. But it's something that we're just not talking about. Um, is it a fair sentence? We've just heard in, in Maya's appeal that giving home detention to a sex offender is a manifestly inadequate sentence. But it seems to be one that's being handed down a lot. But how can the victims and their families feel like they have more say in this process? Well, the system needs to change. I mean, they're, they're just not part of the process. They're, they're a witness only, and that's not acceptable to them. You know, and this is something that, that victims' rights advocates have been saying the whole time. You know, this is actually about us. Why aren't we part of the conversation? Why aren't we represented in court? You know, they're allowed to give victim impact statements, but they're told what they are, what they're allowed and not allowed to say in those. So even then, they're not getting to say what they really want to say to the person who attacked them. You're talking here about a lawyer for the victims. How would that actually work? What role would they play? I'm not sure. I was just kind of thinking, how do you fix it? And I was thinking of um, situations in family law where parents are separating and you know they're discussing who gets custody of the child. And there's a lawyer appointed to represent the child's interests in that case. So the child's voice gets heard. Um, I was just wondering if something similar might work. You know, what you notice in this case is Jade and Maya's got someone who's speaking for him all the way through the process and pushing, let's go for rehabilitation, keep him on home detention, it's best. But there's nobody giving the counter argument because the victims don't have anyone to talk for them. So it could be an interesting idea to actually have someone, a third lawyer in the courtroom who can just make sure that what the victims think is being put across to the court. Towards the end of her judgment, Justice Fitzgerald acknowledged that the victims and their families would feel aggrieved by her decision. But she said that young men can be under no illusion that serious sexual offending is likely to result in a prison sentence. She said this case emphasises the critical need for transparency in the sentencing process because otherwise public confidence in the administration of justice is undermined. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Phil Benj and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Ethan Griffiths and Deborah Wilson. Ka kite anō.